In this series, we've been working through some lesser-known Bible characters. We recognize that they're just normal people that did extraordinary things in and through the power of God. God is what did and did the changing in their lives. The goal of the series is to find some practical principles for their lives and be able to apply them to our lives. We looked a couple of weeks ago at Cain and Abel, and we contrasted their rebellion versus righteousness. And the fact that what they did thousands of years ago is still making an impact in the world today. Then last week we looked at a man named Mordecai, and we contrasted his inspiration to lead people to do what was right and ultimately save his people and contrasted that with an evil man named Haman who also sought to inspire people but for destruction of the Israelite people and we saw how God miraculously worked for such a time as this. This morning we're looking at a a lady named Deborah and this account is just two little chapters in the Bible And it doesn't give us a great deal of detail about all the various things that were taking place in Deborah's life. But some wonderful principles that we can apply to our lives, looking at her example and what she did outside as she lived a life of faith. She didn't just go through the motions and say, I have a faith. And therefore, I'm going to keep it private and I'm going to stay by myself because this is my faith and not anyone else's. Through her faith, she was able to influence others to ultimately live by faith too. And that's our challenge for this morning. And our principle for today is this. I must trust God and live by faith. Do you know the wonderful outworking of that is? When you trust God and you live by faith, we will naturally influence others to also trust God and to also live by faith. It goes beyond the hypothetical and it goes into the practical of our daily life. And this is where I believe we can apply these principles in our life and live differently as a result. Every person here today, you have the ability to live by faith and you may say but i don't have enough faith but you have some faith that we can begin to trust god in and live in rather than focusing on everything that you don't know about the world and don't know about the future and don't know about the bible let's focus upon what you do know about life and the gospel and the bible and how can we live differently as a result I challenged you last week to seek to overcome a horrible disease that is going across our world, the disease of someday-itis, where we put off till tomorrow, someday, what we should be doing today. And I believe if we can, as a church family, but really as individuals within our church family, as individuals overcome someday-itis, we will live very differently as a result. In the book of Judges, chapter number 4, verse number 14, we see a quote from Deborah. And she's talking to a man named Barak, which we'll explain in a few moments' time. And she's challenging him with this. She says, up! 
Now, you can tell that she's obviously a lady and she's a mother because she says, up! She knows exactly how to get people up and get motivated. Up! Exclamation point. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? At this time period, they were seen as underdogs. Now, we love an underdog story. Every single sports movie that's ever been produced is an underdog story. They never have a great, inspiring movie about the people who won absolutely every game by 100 points. They always do the one that is the underdog. As I was thinking about being an underdog, I was thinking about my own sports career. I retired a number of years ago. As a teenager, I played a lot of basketball, and I played with other people that also played very well, so it made me look better. We played an excellent season. I think I was either uh, 16 or 17 at the time, and we were playing in a division where we were doing really well all through the season, and we had made our way all the way to the grand final. Except we weren't all that excited about getting to the grand final because there was another team who was way better than us. We had done really well through the whole season and won most of our games, but this other team had won absolutely every game by a lot, and they had defeated us by a lot every single time we played them because they had a giant on their team. We'll call him Goliath. This giant on their team was a tall, skinny teenager who could slam dunk, and he was faster and taller, than, and he could shoot better than everyone else in the league. And of course, what they would do, they would just pass the ball to him, and he would look over us, and he would shoot the ball, or he would slam dunk it to make us feel small. We were coming to the grand final, and we knew we were going to get second. But God, no, I don't think it's really a God thing, but it was a, something happened in that game that was absolutely miraculous that I personally did not pray for. We started the game off and he was playing like he normally does and Goliath was doing tremendously and we, we knew we were going to lose the grand final. And then he went on a fast break and he ran down and he grabbed the ball, threw the ball down to slam dunk and somehow, and I honestly don't know how he did it, he pulled himself up and he hit his head on the ring right there, flopped down on the ground. I don't think he was crying, but he may have been. His mom runs out, you know, grabs him, and he's bleeding, and she takes him to the side, and eventually he goes off to the ED, and I never saw him again. <laughs> but you know what's amazing? Their best player was out, and then we came up, and we ended up winning the grand final on the end. The good versus, I don't know if they're evil or not, but it made us feel like that. We love an underdog story. We love it when the, the, the little guy comes up and wins in the very last second of the game. As much as we like to think that the story of Deborah and Barak is an underdog story, it really isn't an underdog story. From the outside looking in, it looks exactly like an underdog story, except we, if we forget one fact, God was on the side of the Israelites. And he was on their side, setting things up. And as a result of that, everything was different. Let me give you a little bit of the background of Judges chapter number 4 and 5. 
These two chapters talk about the story of Deborah and the battle that took place as a result. She was called a prophetess. She was called a judge. And she sat before the people and she would look over them at that time and she would determine much like a judge would today, of different conflicts and various things, and she would determine which one was right and which one was wrong. And during this period of time where, as it says in Judges 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel at this period of time, if you look through the history, if you're familiar with a man named Moses, and Moses, of course, led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. After that, God raised up a man named Joshua who led the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, their promised land. And they went through and cleared out most of the land, but they did not clear out all of the land of their enemies. As a result of that, their enemies kept coming coming up and coming up and negatively influencing Israel again and again. And Israel easily followed after the false gods. As a result of that, during this period of time called Judges, which is around 1200 B.C., and it lasted, the period of Judges lasted about 180 years. Israel was back and forth. For a generation or two, they would follow God and then they would slowly step away from the things of God and then they would totally serve the false gods of the people around them. And this wasn't just because God was selfish and he says, I only want you to serve me, which he absolutely has every right to do. It was because his people, God's people, were not just being apathetic towards the things of God. They were actively serving these false gods. And when they were actively serving, you look and you do some research on the Canaanite gods. These Canaanite gods, you hear the word Baal. And they had a number of different Baals. And the Baal was their fertility god and the god of the storms. It would bring all the rain. There was another god they served in that area called Moloch. And Moloch was an evil worship full of sexual immorality throughout their worship that also they would sacrifice their children to their false gods these are things that are absolutely reprehensible before the things of god and as a result of that god would allow these other nations to oppress his people to bring them to the point and really the end of themselves and god in his mercy and his grace would be there waiting for his people to turn back to him And when they did, he would send in a judge to lead the people out of the oppression, to defeat their enemies once again. And then for a generation or two, they would follow after the things of God. And before long, they would begin to serve the false gods. And Israel, we find, were real slow learners. Because during this time, they continually went back and back and back to these false gods. This time period. In Judges chapter number 4, we see that Israel is, is turned away from God and they are not following after him at all. As it says in verse number 1 of that passage, And the people again did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now in this passage, let me tell you the story of Deborah, and then we're going to go back and make some application. I'm just going to give you, just to make you on edge, One of the worst things when you watch a sitcom and they go, to be continued, 
next week. Well, this is what we're going to be doing. I'm going to give you half of the message today, and then the rest of the application will be next Sunday as well. So with this period of time, Deborah is now a prophetess. She's speaking and God's speaking in and through her. She's living by faith and proclaiming the word of God. And she's sitting before the people and she is judging over them what is right and what is wrong. And she is really the leader now in that particular region. And God used some people like the Canaanite king, King Jabed, and his general, General Sisera, to oppress the people. And they oppressed them in a way that was overwhelming for the the, the nation of Israel. They had 900 chariots. And these 900 chariots were like the tanks of the day. And being a a tank, they were unable to, to fight against them easily. And they would, as the story would go, they would be total underdogs trying to defeat this mighty Canaanite army. And then God works through Deborah and she approaches Barak and and she says to Barak, get up and gather together 10,000 people. And I'm going to tell you exactly when to be where you need to be. I'm going to tell you exactly where to be. And I'm also going to guarantee that you're going to have the victory. Oh, that all rhymes. That's pretty cool. All of these various things, I guarantee that you're going to have the victory in the end. And Barak says, I'll go, but if you promise to go with me, Deborah, and Deborah, without hesitation, says, yes, I will go with you. And God does something that only God can do, and he orchestrates the right people to be in the right place at the right time, and they come for a battle, and the Bible commentators suggest this was during the summer season, so it would have been during the dry season. The Canaanites would have had no inclination of bad weather at all, and they brought their chariots down to defeat this small group of only 10,000 Israelites against the Canaanite army. They were the underdogs. Then God did something absolutely miraculous. As the battle began, he brought in an unseasonal storm. And in chapter number five, it talks about the storm. And it suggests that there was hail and there was flooding. And so it made these chariots, who would have been the tanks of the day, totally inoperable and unable to get through and to fight the battle. As a result of that, they were overwhelmed by the army of Israelites. They were ultimately defeated and they were killed. And their general, Sisera, begins to run. And he begins to run to a particular people. And he runs to some people that were in the the no man's land. And we're going to be talking about a lady named Jael next Sunday. And we're going to be looking at her life and how we can, this is part of the story, but I'll tell you now just to, to whet your appetite a little bit for next week. Because God had worked through her people, the Kenites, The Kenites were actually related to Moses' father-in-law. And Moses' father-in-law was not an Israelite, but they joined together with the, the Israelite people, and they became followers of God. But these people were separated from their own people and separated from the Israelites. This family of the Kenites, a man named Herber, was separated, and his wife, Jael. And they were in the, the kind of the no man's land. They had good relationships with the Canaanites. They had okay relationships with the Israelites. And they were just stuck right there in the middle. And this general Sisera begins to run as God has performed this incredible victory. 
And he goes and runs into the lady's tent, which culturally that was way out of bounds for him to do. And he was probably thinking to himself, no one's ever going to find me here because they're never going to think that a general will go hide in the lady's tent. And then J.O. speaks kindly to him. He says he's thirsty. She gives him some milk to drink. She lies him underneath some blankets to hide him. And then this is where it goes from being PG to R-rated in the, in the ratings. And I'll just tell you exactly what the Bible does without going into too much detail. He's asleep there, and then she takes a tent peg and a hammer and goes and lines up next to his head and makes his temple straight through with the, with the tent peg. And the Bible says, and he died. As a result of that, Jael goes outside and waits for the general Barak to come. And as he comes, she, as the Bible says, basically nonchalantly says, yes, your enemy's in here. And they go in and look at it and they go, what have you done? And as a result of that, they come together as a nation. They can defeat the Canaanites. And they turn back to God for another 40 years. And then we go into chapter number five. And chapter number five is a song of Deborah and Barak, and they're praising God for the things that he has done. In Judges chapter number four, verse one, that's the beginning of this passage. So the beginning point is where we find the people of Israel right this moment, before what takes place afterwards. And the people of Israel again did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, sometimes we can find ourselves in a similar position. God, it's me again. I'm finding myself far from you again. And you may be tired of praying the prayers of confession and tired of praying, God, it's me again. I'm struggling with this same sin again. And anytime we have sin, it separates us from the things of God and it makes our prayer life hard. It makes coming to church hard. It makes reading our Bible hard. It makes witnessing our faith to others hard. It makes giving hard and serving hard. And so we come to God again and say, God, it's me again. At the end of this passage, the, there at the beginning of chapter 4, the very last verse of chapter number 5 shows a totally different attitude. God had done exactly what he planned to do in and through his people. And it says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Now that verse right there, it's kind of like, oh, how pretty and pictorial. But what it's really talking about there, it's a total change of attitude. They were going from the old way of saying, God, I don't want to listen to you. I'm going to do things my own way, in my own manner. I'm going to worship you the way that I want to worship you. I will do what I want to do. Total change. And now, quite literally, they're saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. And that's the prayer I believe that we can learn through this. And this is the application for us that we're going to be looking through this morning is the change of attitude. Rather than saying, I will have faith in myself to do things my own way. Now we're living and saying, God, your will be done. If we can filter everything that we say through God, your will be done. How different will our, our conversations be? If we filter everything that we allow to go into our, our eyes and our ears through God, your will be done. How different will our interactions with others be? 
How different will our life and ultimately our family and our communities be if we can filter it through not the first part where they again did that which was evil, but saying, Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. God, I want your will to be done. We find that in the book of Matthew, chapter number six where Jesus is teaching his disciples and ultimately us the, a, a system of prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer, we're not commanded to pray the Lord's Prayer just by rote, but we can certainly learn from it. And what we find Jesus praying, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what I believe will totally change our lives. And we can learn to trust God and live by faith by simply com constantly praying, God, your will be done. That begins with our three points this morning. Depending on the time, because I'm not in a hurry today to get through everything. I can just take my time. Anything I don't get through this week, you get next week, which is a positive. We're going to start with correction and then direction, and then protection. And with that, we're going to be walking through and building on some prayers that we prayed last week. We challenged you to pray last week, which was the prayers of God, you know who, as in who I am, you know who, then you know where, and then you know why. And this is taking the pressure off of ourselves and saying, God, this is really about you. Your will be done. You know who. You know who you're working through. You know where I'm supposed to be and where everything's supposed to be coming from. You know why, because you see the beginning from the end. So we're going to start with that correction. And none of us like this first point. But every single one of us needs it desperately in our lives. The correction. Let's look at book of Judges, chapter number 4, verse 1. If you have your bulletin, you can follow along. There's the message notes there also. And the people of Israel again did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. The real key here is God knows who he's working through. He is talking to, as it says in the very first verse, and the people of Israel. God knows who. And you may think to yourself, well, little old me, why am I going through what I'm going through? God knows the nation of Israel, and we have promises throughout the Word of God, the Bible, that God knows us as individuals. God is not some distant God who doesn't know who we are. So when God gives us correction, He is actually to us specifically. How is He correcting us in our lives, and what's He doing in our lives. Book of Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves 
as a father the son in whom he delights. I love my children. And my parents are in the room right now, and I know they loved me. That's why they corrected me. I love my children, and that's why I seek to correct them. We don't let them go and live any way they could possibly live and do whatever they want to do. If I didn't care for them, absolutely. Go, live life however you want to live, but because we love them. And the same thing for God. God loves his his people of Israel just like he loves you, and therefore he corrects us. God knows where this correction is coming from. He is totally under control at all times. He knows where. Like children playing in a park, the parents are always watching. It may appear while I sit on the, on the bench watching my children go up and down the playground that I'm not watching, but we're always watching. And ladies, you're amazing at this. You can tune your ear in with all the background noise and you hear a particular... And you know it's your kid making that little noise and you turn and you know and you can zoom in on exactly where they are in the park at all time. And in a similar way, God knows where our correction is coming from. He was in total control at all times. In verse number two, it says the Lord sold them. Now, that understanding there of sold is he didn't get any money for it. It was something that he did, and he knew what he was doing. He says, I'm going to give you over to these people to oppress you for a particular time in order to correct you so that you'll come back to me eventually. These Canaanite gods that they were serving were horrible gods. There was nothing that aligned with their worship that made it seem like it was okay. It wasn't just a bit of gray area. They were all the way over in the deep, dark black in in their worship. They were far from God at this time. But God was patient. And it says in verse number 2 and 3, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. God was incredibly patient. It took the nation of Israel 20 years of every year being oppressed. An entire generation of people, that's all they knew was the oppression of the Canaanites. And they still refused to turn back to the things of God until they finally came to the end of themselves. And God knows why he was correcting them. He wasn't correcting them because he was angry at them. and I'm going to give them and get them back for what they've done to me. It was quite the opposite. God knows why. Because it says in verse 3, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Consistently, God has shown himself to be patient and kind and merciful and gracious. If you only think of your own life, but we have examples throughout the Bible of the nation of Israel. We can find some connection with our own lives there. While Moses was receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, and he was up on Mount Sinai, and the nation of Israel was down the bottom, looking up to the mountain, and there was lightning and thunder day after day after day, and then the people became used to it and go, oh, this is no big deal. While their leader Moses was 
literally communing with God, receiving the law of God, and God was writing the law of, of the Ten Commandments onto the tablets there. And Moses comes down, and the nation of Israel, even in the very presence of God's power, was worshiping a golden calf. Moses got mad, and he broke the tablets, and he goes, and, and then the people are corrected during that time. They turn back to him. And then while Moses is now making new tablets to go back up to the top of the mountain to receive the law of God all over again, God says this in Exodus chapter number 34. He says in verses 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Why was he oppressing the people? It's because he wanted to bring them back. I'm going to think really big picture here for a moment. We often think in the short term. And you think, well, the nation of Israel is being brought back to God because he wanted them to worship him at this very moment. But God saw the big picture beyond just the immediate worship in that day and age. And he saw the big picture. He knew that if his people were destroyed, if his people, the Israelites, were, were not following after God, then he would not have a people to bring the Messiah through. If we think big picture, God wasn't just looking at, I'm going to keep my people pure, keep my people following after me because I'm selfish. He was ultimately thinking of you and me. In John chapter number 3, verse 17, we often quote verse number 16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. The next verse is verse number 17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If God refused to bring his people back again and again and again and again, you read through the book of Judges. It's, a, it's an interesting book to read, but it also shows you the mercy and the kindness of God. If God failed to do that, he would not have had the line to bring through ultimately for our Messiah. We would not have this wonderful gift of God. But it says that in order that the world might be saved through him. God was thinking bigger picture than just the immediate. And sometimes we need to think about that with God's correction in our own lives. We think of the, the who, God, you know who I am. Even that's quite remarkable. God loves you so much that he wants to correct you to bring you back into relationship with him. God knows where the correction is coming from. But he also knows why, because he sees the immediate, but he also sees the big picture. That prayer at the end is, God, your will be done. I want you to think through that for just a moment. I want you to think through, God, your will be done. 
in regards to your own life and correction. God's working in a life of a lady named Deborah. But Deborah is a lady who simply did what God told her to do. If you look at verses 4 through 9, it says this. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinonam, from Kadesh Nephetal, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people from Nephetal and from the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Verse 8 continues. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. I want to bring some application for us and just set us up for next week. We see here a lady who I believe was simply praying, God, your will be done. As we see in that passage right there, she was living under the oppression of the Canaanites, just like everyone else was. But rather than living like the rest of the Israelites and living far from God, she chose to live different. She chose to live by faith. And as a result of that, she was able to influence others. She was able to influence others that were probably a lot more well-connected than she was. You think of Barak. He was a general of the day. He was relying upon her faith. It wasn't Barak's faith. It was Deborah's faith. And when we see a person like Deborah, who is simply praying, God, your will be done. This is just a little bit of my imagination right now. She's a prophetess, so God was working in her and through her. She was speaking and proclaiming the things of God to others. Here's a bit of my, my, my imagination. Imagine receiving that impression from God, or that word of God, I want you to go and to talk to Barak and I want you to go and to tell him to gather 10,000 troops and I want you to go and tell exactly where to meet and in what valley and I'm going to be with you. You don't think that she went through this crisis herself thinking, God, are you really here? Are you really working? Who are you working through? Where are you working? Why are you doing? Why me? Let me turn this around a little bit and then we'll close this morning. As you go out this week, you're going to have an opportunity to pray, God, your will be done. And you may be in the middle of correction right now and seeing things going around you in your life and thinking, God, where are you? Why are you doing this? 
What's going on? And you may be a person like Deborah who's been told something that you're the only one. No one else in the nation of Israel was told this. She was the only one being told this. She had a crisis going on in her mind right now. Do I obey or do I disobey? Do I move forward in faith and influence others to trust God and live by faith too? Or do I just hide it and go, well, that was a bit of weird indigestion I had that certainly could not have been God. And you know what? God would have found someone else to work through and we would have never heard of this lady, Deborah. We would never be able to learn from her account. The nation of Israel would have been saved because God would have used someone. But God used Deborah because she simply said, God, your will be done. So as you go out this week, let me encourage you. You're going to have opportunities to face and to pray that prayer as you let things come into your eyes and into your ears. Before you filter and before you say things that come out of your mouth, God, your will be done. Let's use that as a filter this week so we can trust God and live by faith.